Welcome back, Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 41 with Jeff Schmidt, co-founder and CEO of Apollo GraphQL. Jeff and his team have a gift for looking at the same problems we're all looking at and coming up with inspired solutions. After developing Meteor.js in 2011, they developed the Apollo GraphQL platform, which has coalesced an expansive community in just a few years. Jeff has some tactical advice on how to engage with your community to build an amazing business. Apology in advance if there are a few audio blips on this episode. If you like the podcast, please help us get the word out. Like it on iTunes, or even tweet out a link on opensourceunderdogs.com. Our handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. So enough shameless self-promotion. Let's get on with the interview. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Of course, it's a real pleasure. What is GraphQL, and how does it relate to the Apollo GraphQL platform? GraphQL is kind of like a query language for the cloud. We're in an interesting situation right now where, you know, if you go back five or 10 years, the way we build apps is really different. You might have a web server, and the web server might connect to a database or two. And on the, then on the front end, you might have a web browser, maybe even a mobile app. But now we're in this situation that's a lot more complicated where People are expecting more and more from applications. The applications are have a lot more of a richer interactive experience. They do a lot more. They're also available on more platforms. And at the same time, the services in the cloud that back those apps have gotten a lot more complicated too. It's not just a web server, an application server. It's a whole bunch of different microservices typically. And so you've got this problem of how do you connect all of those devices, all those apps, and all that sophisticated functionality to all those services that exist in the cloud? And the old way of doing this was REST APIs, but REST APIs require that you write a bunch of custom code basically for every screen in your app, probably a new REST endpoint for every use case. And what GraphQL is, is it's a flexible query language. So an app developer can ask for any combination of data they need out of the cloud, and you don't have to write custom code anymore like you would with a REST API. So one way of looking at it is it's a a better way for app developers to be able to query all the data that exists in the cloud. It's you know, a much better experience for the developer. Another way of looking at it is it's a way that an organization can build a connected map of all their data and services in the cloud. So you can have one central organizational source of truth for all those resources. And I think another way to look at it is it's almost like an abstraction layer for the cloud. It's a way that you can, even as you're writing new applications, even as you're building new microservices, you can keep like one consistent stable map. So that you know, really gives you the ability to write a lot more apps, build a lot more cloud services, and evolve all your infrastructure in a really flexible and more principled way now that every app has an API inside of it. Can you walk us back to 2011? Meteor Development is founded. Where were you then? And how did you develop that into Apollo GraphQL? Sure. So this whole journey started for us back in 2011. We were in one of the early Y Combinator batches back in summer of 2011. And it was me and a couple friends, and we had a lot of different ideas about what we wanted to do. But when we got into Y Combinator, we discovered that all of the people in our Y Combinator batch were really struggling to solve the problems of modern app development. 2011 was kind of a tipping point when the world went beyond Rails or PHP is enough to, wait a second, now people have bigger expect- expectations about the user experience they're trying to deliver, where they're trying to deliver that user experience. So what we decided to do is, me and my co-founders, Matt DeBurgulis, Nick Martin, we'd work on a variety of other projects together. Um, each of us had built a different combination of apps or open source projects or SaaS products. And we thought, can we take everything that we know about building modern applications and put it into a reusable framework? 
just help people build apps faster. And that gave birth to Meteor.js, which we launched in early 2012. And it grew over the next couple of years to become one of the top 10 most started projects on GitHub. When we launched Meteor 1.0, there were local Meteor meetups in, I think, 134 cities around the world on the same day. So we had a big success with this monolithic JavaScript open source app development framework. And we were starting to look toward, and, and we were able to build a profitable business on top of Meteor 2, or Meteor as well, with Galaxy, which was a hosting platform for Meteor. But what we started to realize as we got toward the end of 2015, there was a bigger opportunity because we were finding that people wanted to connect Meteor, not just to MongoDB, which was the database that came in the box with, with Meteor, but they wanted to connect it to all sorts of different sources of data and services in the cloud. And we also found that people were wanting to build app experiences that were not just JavaScript in their web browser, but across any number of different mobile platforms and increasingly like all kinds of new stuff, these IoT platforms, like all these things were happening. And we realized that if we could take the technology inside Meteor or the ideas, the architectural ideas inside Meteor and put it in a form where you could use it not just for new applications like Meteor, but for any app, and you could connect it to any source of data in the cloud not just a particular database, and you could push into many platforms, not just like one front-end written in JavaScript, that it would have an even broader applicability. The other thing we saw was that enterprises were starting to adopt Meteor.js, and we were getting much more familiar with the needs that you see when you're building highly scaled applications in enterprise, not just scale in terms of how far the technology scales, but scale in terms of how you have larger code bases, larger teams. And so that led to us starting to research, like, what would Meteor 2.0 look like? What would the components of that be? We'd also seen the rise of React. And we'd seen that something like React that's incrementally adoptable, where instead of having to build a new application, you can add it to an existing application and quickly get up and running, quickly get some proof points. We saw how powerful that was for growth. And so we thought, can we build a new data layer for Meteor that takes everything we learned from the whole experience with Meteor, this very popular open source project, Everything we learned from our enterprise customers, everything we learned about the proliferation of backend services in the cloud and, and new front-ends that people want to use, and put it in an incrementally adoptable form. And um, that's the end of 2015, I guess. And that's around when we heard about GraphQL. GraphQL was just what we needed to work on this new project, which is what we were calling the Apollo project, because Meteor had been so tied to MongoDB, whereas GraphQL is... The whole idea is it's this database agnostic abstraction layer that lets you talk to any number of different databases or cloud services. So we set up to take the, um, some of the core ideas and learnings from Meteor, make it speak GraphQL as a query language, build something that was very easy for people to drop into existing applications. And then we started launching the first Apollo open source components in early 2016. And um, you know, it's just been a, a really amazing um, couple of years since then. More and more people have adopted this technology and I think it's really exceeded any expectation we had for it back in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about how your sales processes have evolved? Because I would imagine initially there was a lot of organic inbound enterprises saying, okay, we want to use this software. But over time, how has that changed and adapted to the demand? Yeah, I think we've seen a trajectory that's um, pretty typical in the sense that, yeah, to your point, some of our first customers were people that were already very sophisticated users, very sophisticated early adopters who were using Apollo at scale in the enterprise, as well as people maybe who were small bin-sized businesses but had a strong vision for what they wanted to do and wanted a good technology partner for their vision. And I think the way it's evolved over time is, I think as a typical and open source, some of those first customers were people that really 
there are various things that we help them with, but in a lot of cases, it was the relationship with us, maybe some co-development on the open source, us you know, carrying a pager for their systems, maybe. There's a couple of different ways those things were structured. But what's happened is over time, more and more of our businesses, more and more of our business has shifted toward the additional tools and services that we're able to provide around the core Apollo client, Apollo server open source offering. So we have a product called Apollo Graph Manager. Graph Manager is essentially the control plane for a data graph. So we have Apollo Client, Apollo Server. That's basically the, the data plane. It's the stuff that goes in your data center to answer queries, the stuff that can't go down, the stuff that handles all of your personal data, all your sensitive business data. But what we found is both as companies scale the graph, they go from just a couple developers to 10 developers to 100 developers to 1,000 developers. There's a lot of additional management tooling you want. There's also a bunch of architectural best practices that are really helpful. Like It's really helpful to put your graph schema in a schema server, uh, have a central source of truth for your, you know, the structure of your graph, how it's changing over time, build workflows and process and governance around that. At the same time, there's also you know, one of the best parts about GraphQL is the tooling that's possible around it. And that tooling is super valuable very early in the development process as well. And so the SaaS services we built that are essentially a souped up set of developer tools um, and even more so a control plane for a scaled enterprise data graph, that's all packaged up in a SaaS service we call Graph Manager. More and more, business, more and more of our business now is Graph Manager. And what we've done is we've created both an enterprise offering around Graph Manager that comes with the full you know, 24-7, 365 SLA for the whole Apollo platform covering all the open source, all the SaaS as well as our you know, support and expertise, as well as some like an enterprise edition of Graph Manager that has features like you know, single sign-on, some other things that are enterprise-specific requirements, as well as having, you know, we go all the way down to a $49 um, per seat per month offering that anyone can buy online with a credit card because we want to support people through the whole development lifecycle. And we also have a freemium offering. So if you just want the developer tools for the earliest stage in the development process, you can use it for free. So we've really tried to understand what the entire user journey is from the moment you write the first line of code and, and start exploring GraphQL all the way through to when you have a scaled graph in the enterprise, it's a strategic asset. We've tried to understand how people want to buy and how people want to partner with us at each of those stages. And it's an ongoing process, but we're building our packaging around that user journey to try to accommodate each stage in the journey. What would you say the current breakdown is of SaaS versus license revenue? Or is, it, is which part of the business is more important today from a revenue perspective? Yeah, I think there are some open source companies where the service offering is a bolt-on, like maybe it's a nice to have, but it's it's not really that critical or you know, in some cases it's something that was included primarily just to, you know, drive renewals. That's not the case for us. We find that the graph manager, the SaaS tools are very important to people as they scale um, and also are something that, you know, people really value early in the process. So, I would say that almost every customer is using some form of the SaaS tools. Now, in terms of what's the breakdown of revenue versus uh, people that are purchasing online versus people who are purchasing more enterprise subscriptions, the enterprise subscriptions are a big part of the revenue uh, right now. From a customer count point of view, it's more um, online purchases, but most people are using some form of the graph manager, though there are exceptions to that. So JavaScript is the largest community. Do you have any insights on how other open source companies can align with the JavaScript world? JavaScript is really about the rise of app developers, and it's about the rise of accessible app development. It's one of the easiest languages to learn, and there's a huge amount of demand for more sophisticated websites built in JavaScript. A lot of what drives the rise in JavaScript is there's this whole world of apps that were written on 
kind of these lamp stack derivative frameworks that date back to the in many in some cases the 90s like you know php ruby on rails you know asp.net spring like the the lamp stack approach to building applications and what's going on right now is a lot of those apps that are written on those frameworks are getting replatformed onto a more modern app dev stack that includes react apollo some of these other components that go into building a modern experience and so I think that the way to think about how you align with JavaScript is to think about how you align with that movement toward like modern app development. And the thing is, most of the time when someone is, when a company is going through that transition where they're replatforming, it's part of a larger modernization effort. And they're often evaluating other technologies too. They may be thinking about, hey, is this a time that we bring in Kubernetes? Or is this a time that we bring in a different approach to mobile development? Is this a time that we go to different platforms? And so I think like every offering is going to be different. You either have a nexus with modern app development or you don't. If you do have a nexus with mobile app development or mo- modern app development, then I think it's really important to understand like the, the JavaScript constituency is going to be one of your biggest users if you can understand really what their pain points are. And I think like it's a community that's very driven by, by community. It's, um, I think, front-end developers by nature are you know, they value design, like they, they value community. It, there's, there's a really great community there, a very collaborative, positive community that um, is more diverse than some in tech, that's more accessible than some in tech. So making an investment in how you meet that community where it is, understand what the values of that community are, and maybe build some relationships with the leaders in that community, I think can uh, really help you reach those app developers. The other thing that's important is to understand that it's a community that cares a whole lot about user experience, maybe more so than some other communities. So it's, it's what you do every day as an app developer. You think about how you deliver a great user experience to users. So it's, it tends to be a group of people that value a good user experience. So I think those are some of the values of the community that can um, help you get more mindshare more quickly if you do have a product that is related to modern app development. Has the open sourcing of the code materially benefited the company? Oh, absolutely. You know, Apollo would not exist today if we're not open source. I don't think there would have been any way to do this other than a you know, permissively licensed set of open source libraries. You were mentioning pricing before, and actually I think pricing is really hard for enterprise startups. In your industry, it sounded like you had a logical gating mechanism, like you mentioned number of developers. Mm-hmm. But do you have any advice, you know, in, in start, going from 2011 to today, any advice on how do you find the right price and the right gates for your software? Well, it was a journey for us to get here. We originally priced based on query volume, so the number of operations that you performed on your graph. And the reason we went that direction is we thought of it as a utility like AWS. And we thought how cool it would be if you had a very predictable, very simple way of understanding, hey, here's what my costs are going to be. And it's utility like electricity or water or cloud computing. And we thought that was a model that everyone was really familiar with that would feel like a, a natural way to purchase infrastructure like a data graph platform. What we learned was that query volume pricing wasn't very well aligned either with how people wanted to buy and budget for technology in this case, and also that wasn't very well aligned with the value that we were providing. So we had customers that were maybe doing billions of queries a month, but with a small team, and we had customers that were doing maybe millions of queries a month with a much larger team for like maybe an even more valuable line of business. Like the business value associated with the query is so different across maybe a B2C app that is like, you know, mostly freemium versus an internal line of business application. So that lack of value alignment, which kind of manifested it as 
the platform would get way too expensive way too quickly for some people, whereas other people that were driving a lot of revenue with the product and getting a lot of value and were very happy with it might only be paying a few dollars a month. It manifested it as churn of some of our largest customers as the query volume pricing um, just got unaffordable. It manifested as a lot of people that had to contact sales better understand the pricing. And it also manifested as longer sales cycles because it meant that we were forcing people to predict their usage of the graph far into the future. Because if, if you're going to adopt this like core piece of infrastructure, you really want to have a, a good way to understand what your costs are going to be. And if you're looking at this thing, you're thinking, man, this is probably going to expand to be all of my app development, all of my traffic. And especially if it's a new technology where you don't necessarily know how to estimate how many queries you're going to be doing, like how many React components might use this, how many queries might each one do. That's really scary and it slows adoption and lengthens the sales cycle. So what we did was we um, listened to customers to understand what's the most easy and natural way for them to buy that just feels like a great experience for them. And what we found was that at the early stage of the journey, especially if you're doing the self-service purchase online or if you're an engineering manager who's just buying it for your team, thinking about it as developer productivity, seed pricing is a very natural and easy way to understand it because it's proportional to the investment that you're making in developing your application, proportional to your team size. It's also pretty easy to predict and plan. And you can plan it alongside your other costs. And as we get into some of the enterprise tiers, there's a platform fee as well, which is based on sort of the overall intensity of use of the graph, which is a couple axes. Query volume is an axis there, but it's only one of several axes that we use to understand, hey, is this like an individual team? Maybe it's this whole business unit. Is this a whole like much larger company that's a whole family of different brands? So we found that really starting with an understanding of how people want to buy and aiming to serve the customer rather than saying, what do we think our users might want? Or saying, what's the easiest way to plan our business? Was really, I think for us, the master key in, in fighting the right pricing. To get you to your new pricing model, did you appoint somebody who was heading up that task and who made the final decision around what to charge? It was my co-founder, who's also our head of product, but it was a process that involved many people on our team, many customer conversations, listening to what we were hearing in the field from the sales team, listening to, hearing, listening to what we were hearing on the um, developer relations and open source side, a lot of conversation inside the team. And, you know, ultimately, it's something where it's definitely one of the decisions that's hard to change. Like you don't want to be constantly changing your pricing or at least your pricing axes. So at some point you have to make, you have to gather the information you can and make a decision and commit to it and take it from there. Would you say that you're open core? I would describe this as a complementary product model. So we have our open source and right now, we don't hold anything back on the open source. Could there be open core enterprise features in the future? Yeah, maybe. And we've heard some requests that might be a good fit for that model. But currently, our open source is, is just open source. What we offer is a SaaS service on top of that. So I think of it as a complementary product. And you know, the way I think about that from a business point of view, you know, if I think about advice I give open source entrepreneurs, I think your business model as an open source company is not necessarily something you can force. Like, I don't think you get to pick your business model. I think it's more like you get to pick your problem. You get to pick, like, pick what you're building. And then that will have a natural business model associated with it. So I think that um, there's some things that are open source are just really hard to monetize. Like a lot of things in the, that are 100% in the view layer in the front end, like there's just not a natural way to monetize that. So those things, like their ultimate destiny, at least I think for the foreseeable future in a lot of cases, is just going to be open source libraries. There's other things that, can really naturally be monetized by selling, um, you know, support or services from day one. There's other things like it often in an open core model. There's other things that 
very naturally can be monetized by saying, hey, I have some open source, but anyone using this open source, many of them will want the SaaS service. And I think Git and GitHub is a great example of that. I think you have to start with what the natural structure of your solution is and ask what are the commercial, what are the pieces of this that your users would like to be commercial? And what are the pieces of this that your users would like to be open source? And follow what really does right for the user in order to find that right model. I think if you try to go the other way and say, I'm going to try to force a particular business model on this because that's my strategy, I think you end up creating a worse experience for the user. And I just think that the world we're in with DevTools and the internet today, there are so many opportunities. Like I, I think the, the, the correctly shaped, you're going to see competition. The correctly shaped product, I think, is going to win with the correctly shaped business model. Is there an Amazon GraphQL hosted service similar to what you're offering? Amazon does have a GraphQL offering called AppSync. Um, AppSync is more focused on mobile development, and it's more focused on getting mobile developers a great way to access all the data and resources they have inside Amazon. So it's a little bit more of a backend as a service. Maybe that's not quite the right way to study it because it can do it can do so much more inside Amazon. That's different from what Apollo is, which is focused on integrating many different data sources in the cloud as something you can incrementally adopt. Like you can add Apollo to any existing application or stack, whereas AppSync is designed a little bit more for new application development typically. So they're actually complementary. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to say, I'm going to put Apollo as my data graph integration layer, and then maybe I could have AppSync as some of my backend services. With technology like Apollo Federation, they're good frameworks for how we can think about federating multiple GraphQL services together to build one graph. Some of the details there are still being worked out because a lot of this is still new technology, but conceptually, I see them as complementary products rather than competitive. Well, let's just say that Amazon takes the Apollo open source server and launches Amazon Apollo server service. Would you view that as a positive or a negative? I think the, the more the merrier. I would love to see more people running Apollo server on Amazon. And if Amazon helps them out, that's great. We're focused more on how you scale the graph, and that has a lot more to do with workflows and the control plane and the schema registry, a bunch of other things that are like really different from um, that are in our SaaS offering and are really different from Apollo Server and Apollo Client. So I think um, the more people are building services on top of GraphQL, and the you know more GraphQL grows, the more people are going to need solutions for managing large GraphQL graphs like Apollo Graph Manager. So I think it's actually a positive for us potentially. Do you ever feel any friction between when you're introducing a new tool and between should this be open source or should this be commercial? And how do you decide which way to go? For us, we have a pretty bright line. We start with, does this naturally exist inside the SaaS offering or does this naturally exist inside the open source? And I think that's been a really reliable benchmark for us. Some of the things that on some level, that's just a technological fact, like where it should go or where it should live in our case. The, you know, because we have a SaaS model instead of an open core model currently. But I think there's some things we've learned along the way that I can talk about. I think one of the core ideas is companies want to own their data graph. This is a very important investment for them, and they don't want to feel beholden to an outside vendor just for the you know, continued existence of that and maintenance of that thing. At the same time, they also want to see strong vendors with viable business models because they want to know that there's going to be somebody there to support them. So I think that um, your challenge as a vendor is helping craft that right relationship with your customer so they feel um, comfortable and secure and um, they trust both that you're not going to be in a position of too much power over them, but at the same time that they trust that you're going to be around. 
it's, I mean, I think they're very rational considerations that customers have when they're selecting a solution like this. And downstream from that, focus on customer trust and just really trying to understand, you know, what would you want a partner if, if you were that enterprise that was purchasing the software or adopting the solution, whether it's open source or commercial. I think that some of the principles we found are what's inside control, owning your graph, controlling your graph. It's important that people own the entire, entire data plane, I think. So everything from when the request, I mean, because it's this integration middleware, everything from the request comes in all the way through to when it's answered by your services and the response is stitched together and set back down to the client. You want to feel like you're in control of the uptime of that. You want to feel like you're in control of the you know, security and like the privacy associated with that. You want to feel like if there's ever an issue, you can look under the hood, read the code, understand what's going on and fix it without necessarily waiting for a round trip for the vendor at the same time as you want to have the vendor on a 24-7, 365 page rotation for you. So when we think about the features that relate to keeping your system secure and private and up, to me, those are the things that have to be open source. When you think about the things that relate to how we manage the workflows and processes around it, where maybe it is tolerable for some of those aspects to exist inside of a SaaS platform, and maybe it's even better because you have a you have a supplier that's constantly keeping that up to date, adding new features, and it's delivered as a managed service to you. Those are the places where I feel like the the SaaS stuff um, fits really naturally. And so there's some um, nuance and complexity in there about how we've engineered that. So, for example, one of the things that Graph Manager can do is it can manage the deployment of your Apollo Gateway instances. If you're managing, if you're using Apollo Federation to manage a whole constellation or fleet of these different um, GraphQL backend services in a federated architecture. So to do that, what we do is we push Graph Manager, push the configuration that those Apollo Gateway servers are going to need to pick up into a highly available globally distributed CDN. That way, when you're doing the analysis of um, how is this going to affect my uptime to have this actionable dependency on this other component, you can see um, even if Graph Manager does go down for 30 seconds, it's not going to affect my ability to scale up and down my servers because um, you know we've we found a solution like the CDN to ensure really high uptime for our services. Last year, you announced the GraphQL Foundation. I'm wondering, is that self-sustaining and what role the foundation is playing in the ecosystem? So the GraphQL Foundation um, that was put together by us together with Facebook and the Linux Foundation and a few other um, great founding partners coming from Facebook's roles, the folks that originally wrote the GraphQL spec and created the GraphQL language. The foundation has had a, you know, it, it is self-sustaining. It's under the auspices of the Linux Foundation. And I think the way I see the foundation is they're the keepers of the specification. It's really important that a technology like GraphQL, that we have a way as an industry to evolve it going forward while maintaining interoperability. And I think. Um, in the early days of GraphQL, there were a lot of questions about the relationship between GraphQL and Facebook. There's a lot of positives there because there's the proof point about how GraphQL has powered applications at massive scale at Facebook for years. And that gives people a lot of confidence that um, it's a good technological direction. At the same time, too much um, control by Facebook that, that isn't a developer tools company, I think, was a little bit of a concern for some folks. And now that we have a now that we have a foundation that can be the custodian of the spec, I think that's a development that's given folks a lot of um, comfort and confidence. The enterprise software market has changed a lot in the last 10 to 20 years. Can you talk about how you think vendors of open source software should think about their strategy today? I think the key thing to understand first is, to the extent that you're th- thinking about how you monetize your open source, who is the buyer? Is the buyer going to be 
an end user, in which case you probably have more of a bottoms-up motion where it's probably a product-led motion where you're focusing very much on the user's first moments of experience and what the value proposition is for that first credit card swipe. And then maybe after that, thinking about what are the layers that drive and upsell the enterprise possibly as the graph grows and maybe that's you know what starts being used by multiple teams or whatever your product is. I think there's there's another approach that can also work well, I think, where if the buyer is more naturally maybe a leader uh, inside the infrastructure team or maybe another executive where it might make sense to enter around the fifty dollars to $150,000 price point, which is more like a more comprehensive enterprise subscription offering. I think the thing to understand is what really is the adoption model of your software inside the customer and understand, is it really driven by um, end users that want to purchase easily online? Or is it driven more by the need to have a business relationship and a vendor relationship? And I think that ends up being the, in my point of view, the driver of how you build your go-to-market strategy. Last question. Any advice for new entrepreneurs, like the people who are starting this business around an open source product? product? What advice would you, I guess, maybe you give yourself if you could go back 10 years or so, nine years? It's a good question. I guess I would say they're not the easiest businesses to start, but they're some of the most rewarding because you get to build an incredible community and you get to touch a lot of people. You get to do it very quickly at internet scale. and I think one key idea about doing open source right is that it's about building a coalition. There are many different models about you know, how you might structure contributions to your product, but whether your project is more like a cathedral or more like a bazaar, what I think is very important is that it be a coalition. In this era, you're not going to succeed if you go it alone. You're going to succeed if you understand the larger set of communities, the larger set of other projects and needs and customers and entrepreneurs that exist around you and think, how can I build a coalition to solve a problem that people really care about? And so I think if you start from that point about the, the community you want to build and the problem you want to solve, that ends up being a more powerful starting point than, hey, what's a really cool piece of technology I could build? I think that's really good advice. The other thing I'd say is, I think um, through podcasts like Open Source Underdogs, I think um, it's getting easier and easier to start these types of businesses. I think if you go back even not that many years, a lot of the ways that you would build a business like this were really speculative and unknown. And that made things a lot harder. You know, for example, like, can you find executives that already understand your business model? Are there pre-established like marketing and sales playbooks that you can run? Are there reference points that you can look at in terms of pricing and packaging to understand what's worked and what hasn't worked? Or even is there a community for you as an entrepreneur where you can meet some other folks that have been down this road and talk about your experiences? All those things have gotten a lot easier. It's a model that's increasingly well understood. I think it's not just the future, but also the present at this point. So I think it's, it's been really rewarding. Uh, it's been a great experience for us. I think um, it can require some patience because you know in open source business models, you have to succeed twice. First, you have to build a great open source project or technology and a great community around it. And then you have to build a great business around that. But if you have the stamina to do it, not only are they some of the most rewarding businesses, I think, and not only do you have this incredible tailwind behind you with your community and your supporters if you built a good coalition. But additionally, I think they have the potential to be some of the most capital efficient businesses and have some of the best economics because you know if you structure your business right, you have some of the best parts of a B2C business on one side where you're able to have a big internet community and a big group of supporters that all have your back, but with some of the B2B economics on the back end. You just have to do the work to understand what really is the right way to benefit your users. Uh, and serve the community 
because it is a business model where you have to start from a point of view of stewardship, asking how you do arrive at the community, asking how you um, adopt the perspective of making the best use of the resources and position that's been entrusted to you in the community. But I think that's really fun for people that are attracted to that. I think that was all really good advice. So thank you so much for for sharing. Of course. And thanks to the Apollo team for logistical support. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Transcription by Maria Anchikovic. The Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Next week, for our final episode of the season, we have one of the true veterans of the industry, Ed Boyajian, CEO of Enterprise DB. And it's going to be a special episode, so please don't miss it. Until then, thanks for listening.